Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is your modern, full-service marketing ad agency. They can work with you on logos, brand development, interactive and digital media, whatever it takes to take your company to the next level. So look them up online, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, today we're joined by a special guest, Valentina, owner of Nona Urban Eatery in Old Town Scottsdale. She was gracious enough to bring us some amazing spirits, some stuff from South America I've never had, and stuff that's actually really special to her heritage. It really was an honor to be able to sit down and talk to somebody as passionate about food as we are about wine. So we really hope you enjoy this episode. We learn a whole bunch of new things. We get a second doorbell ring, and we talk about urban gypsies. So enjoy. Thank you. How many languages do you speak? Four. What? Do you really? And the more I drink, the more the Italian comes out. So. Do you speak Italian? Yeah. So what else do you speak? Spanish, Italian? French, Italian, kitchen Spanish. Kitchen Spanish. <laughs> Real Spanish, <laughs> English. Kitchen Spanish is a thing, too. It is. It? Oh, my God. It it's, totally it's, is. It's, it's its own nuances, its own tones, its oh, own yeah. slang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Oh, yeah. And everything enough. ends with poppy. <laughs> I've worked in enough kitchens way. I that. Or way yeah. Oh yeah, way Definitely Or way. Yeah <laughs> Oh yeah Depends on if they like you or not, I guess Yeah Yeah I oh, mean man, That's a part about being in kitchens This whole time Is every time working at R&R Frasers that always just yell at me And I'd be like I don't know But then they just point And be like Oh okay, I know what you mean Yeah, that I think yeah. everybody picks up The five or six Mexican kitchen terms in Basos. Ch- ch- chingadero. Chingadero, yeah. yeah. Chingadero. Andale. Andale, yeah. Budweiser. <laughs> For all of our kitchen chefs at the end of the night, they're like, hey, Budweiser. <laughs> well, they knew what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, those were the, some of the first words I learned in Spanish or in Mexican. You know? Spanish. I know. <laughs> well, some of them are, there are some slang ones thrown in the middle, though. But they, they translate pretty well. I mean, if you speak. Spanish, you could pick up French and Italian fairly easy because they're semi-related. I mean, pseudo. Um, for me, it actually messed me up. The more I learned the French, the more the English got a little wonky, and the more I learned the Italian, the more the Spanish got a little wonky. <laughs> so at this point, my mom is not really happy about the way I speak Spanish because it's not proper Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Did you learn those languages when you were young, or is it something you've just kind of learned as you've gotten older? So the French I actually learned when I was 18. I started in school, and then I ended up getting a scholarship to go to Monaco to school. And so one of the things that I had to do um, was to be 100% you know, proficient in French. And so I actually took eight hours of French for uh, close to eight months. Wow. And so that was like sort of drilled. Uh, but that was when I was 22. And then the the Italian side, I actually ended up learning because I was managing all these people that spoke Italian. And so the only way to tell them what to do was to actually know what they were saying. <laughs> and this was in so Monaco or? This was, was in, um, in in France. This was in, in a place called Monton uh, that is in the, uh, in the French Riviera. Yeah. I mean, I've learned a good amount of... Spanish and French and Italian working in the wine and food and beverage industry. Yes. But besides asking, you know, can I have some more wine or where's the bathroom? I'd be pretty much screwed, like, as a general. I think, what? 
for me, it's just been, I've been in situations where I've had to learn the language, you know, if you're there and you work, then you sort of have to learn it, you know, so. A, a lot yeah. of my friends that speak, that are from foreign countries that learned English, learned it from uh, watching TV. Indeed. Yeah. Pop culture, man. Did you do the same thing? Is that how you kind of learned? Like, English? Yeah. Were you, no. bo- were you born here? No, no. I was born in Mexico. I was born in Mexico City. I was born and raised in Mexico. I spent the first 17 years of my life in Mexico. Um, I was super fortunate to have a, an amazing mother that uh, who's an English teacher. And <laughs> so I actually learned English at the same time as I learned Spanish. And um, that was that was amazing because I came here for a swim camp when I was little. And that sort of helped me with the slang because, you know, in school they only teach you the good stuff, but they don't teach you the things that I'm, you should. I'm English, and yeah. I, or, <laughs> I guess American, and I don't even understand some of the places that some people speak from. I had a roommate when I was playing basketball in France, and he was from Alabama, and I constantly was like, what are you saying? Because I could not understand. He had a semi, that Louisiana Creole, because he was mm-hmm. right on the border, and then also a slang accent, and the constant conversations we would have would go nowhere because I just couldn't understand him half the time. <laughs> and he was speaking English. <laughs> yeah, uh, Chef actually has a really hard time. With, Does he with the the southern accents and you know? I noticed like, like what? I noticed a couple times he'll definitely be like, "Wait, what?" He, he what? gives me that look like, yeah. "Wait, what's that word?" Yeah. He's, he's processing. About it. Oh, I yeah, got yeah, it. He's yeah. processing. You know, like processing a little. How long has he been in America now? Uh, since we opened. That's yeah, it. Since really? We opened. Yeah, he was wow. here to study English um, when we first uh, two thousand six. He was here for a little bit. He went to uh, to Scottsdale Community okay. for a couple semesters to kind of get his English going. Um, yeah. And he's from Venezuela. He was born in Venezuela. His mother is from the Canary Islands, and his dad is from Sicily. Oh wow! So his dad's dad's born in Sicily. Came in. So in a Portuguese boat. mom. Italian uh, Spanish mom. Canary Islands are Spanish. Canary Islands is Spanish, yeah, oh. but it's actually closer to Africa, <laughs> which makes it really like <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so island and island, it's kind of like, ooh. yeah, a little bit. God, our lives are so boring. Listening to this, I'm like, well, I was born in a suburb in New York. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So it's like being born on an island a little bit. <laughs> upstate New York. Oh, so. upstate New York. That's right. Never mind. It was about as vanilla as you can get growing up. Really? I'm from Scottsdale. It's pretty vanilla down here. I mean, I would say John Winston right now. Yeah. What is person at the table? This guy. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> at be- least in New York, you've gotten like, you know, so much influence from like everywhere. And- True. I mean, growing up, two of my best friends were uh, Lev and Avram. So I learned how to cook a lot of Jewish foods growing up and eat a lot of Jewish foods. How's your Yiddish? I learned uh, at a young age how to make latkes. So That was pretty cool. And then my whole neighborhood was actually a very ethnic neighborhood. So uh, the neighbors across the way were Polish. The neighbors to the left were uh, Italian. The neighbors kitty corner were French. A lot of Slovaks. Whenever something broke in the neighborhood... It always got fixed by a neighbor. It was always on trade. So my dad was in the HVAC business. Stanley Sokolowski across the way was in the tile business. So when we needed tile work done, he came over and did the tile work on our house. And then when his air conditioner went out, me and my dad went over and fixed his air conditioner. And then we all drank vodka afterward and had a good night. Like (laughs) nobody ever paid anybody for anything. Even the parts, nobody would be like, he's like, no, no, I got it. I got it. Don't worry about it. Just give me some beers next time. Yeah. What a great way to grow up. It's a different culture. And I think it's that way in most other countries it is actually in mexico that's very common it's like you always got a friend that 
has something that can help you and you help other people. And that's just what it is. You never pay people. <laughs> and yeah. that's a very strange thing about Arizona because Arizona, people don't always get to know their neighbors here. And that's mm-hmm. one of been one of my big problems with living here is that we don't have the sense of community that I had growing up in New York. Like you're like just nodding yeah. and shaking your head. Oh, you get I it. totally get it. I totally get it. It's what a great way to bring up a kid. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, to teach about other things that are not related to money. You, you, you know, there's respect, there's, you know, community, there's um, knowing that other people have different skills that are very different than you, um, but they have these amazing skills, you know, that you need to live and that you need to fix your house and that you need for your, I just, I feel like that's such a, a great way to grow up. I remember even uh, the neighbor to the left, uh, Nick Spagnola, the Italian, he had uh, his driveway put in and every neighbor came out and was out there laying concrete and shoveling stuff. And like everybody was out there doing it. And it was just without even thinking twice. It was just like, oh, he needs help. I'm going to help him. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that. I growing up, I don't know who my neighbors were and they had kids. I, st- I don't know their names. I didn't know who they were. And we were talking about this with uh, Kirti. Our sense of community is our beverage industry mm-hmm. and the food industry. Like, that's our community. But it's funny because if I were to go up to any of them, nobody would know how to program. Nobody would know how to, like, do hair. Nobody would know how to do concrete, roofing. Tile. Every time I have something that needs to get fixed on, I call my dad. If I didn't have him, we'd be shelling out a fortune to fix something yeah. somewhere because we don't know a guy. The only guy we know is Joe who does AC, and that's it. Yeah, it's weird. Now that I'm thinking about that, I'm like, I don't know people who can do things beyond the liquor and food industry. Yeah. That's not that's not good. The good thing about owning a restaurant though, too, is that you do get to you learn to have a lot of trade people at your disposal. Cause they usually like to eat. Yeah. They do. They do. I've actually I think that the best part of it has actually been that most of my regulars have this backpack of talents you know um we have people in the nonprofit. we have uh realtors we have winemakers winemaker. <laughs> a lot of winemakers that come to to the restaurant so i just love that i'm medical in the medical field as well medical um, field is huge nurses i have a, a midwife group that comes and <laughs> hangs out you know like it's what an amazing situation you know i think that you know to kind of link this with your upbringing the restaurant has become this place of of you know if you like food and you enjoy somebody's company to the point of spending two good hours you know eating and drinking yeah i could tell she like what kind of blood she has in her because she's like you gotta spend two hours eating and drinking like minimum like well, so what yeah, it's that's yeah. a very mexican thing it, you know yep the, once the food is gone the experience does not finish you know this is where it starts this is where you you're now satiated from a physical standpoint. Now you start chatting and talking and out comes a whole bunch of spirits and coffee and more desserts. You know, I mean, the Mexicans and the Italians are very similar in that, mm-hmm. in that, you know, Sunday's family day. You're going to eat and drink and laugh and have fun all day long. I mean, it's not just dinner. It's it's just the whole day of just eating and enjoying each other's company. And that's what means so much. And that's something that Americans don't have. It's all, a lot of times it's a rush, 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 get it done. I got to eat real quick so I can Turn do the next thing. Turn over for the next table. Got to get the kids to this practice and go here. And whereas, 
you just need to sit down and enjoy your family once in a while. Yeah, I mean, uh, our Italian family dinners, you've met my mom before, and uh, we wouldn't really get out of our seat until it was uncomfortable to keep sitting. So you oh, would yeah. just be there the whole time, like, all right, finally my back's giving out. It's time to go outside and sit on a lounge chair and smoke a cigar or something. And then you start all over again. And then you basically start all yeah. over again. That's just, the fun part. Yeah. It's like, okay, we're done with lunch. What are we cooking for dinner? Yeah, <laughs> you work in between, you yeah. eat. <laughs> and then you eat just as long as you work. So, Valentina, let's have you tell everyone a little bit about yourself as far as, like, the restaurant, kind of when you started. Because I know you through Jonathan. And I've eaten at the restaurant a couple times, but I know you two are fairly close. You two have spent a lot of nights probably talking to each other. But I'm lucky, man. She's basically my neighbor when it comes to my winery. Her shop or uh, her restaurant is 30-second walking distance. So, we actually started uh, Nona about two years ago, two, a little bit over two years ago. Um, it's a little, little restaurant in Old Town Scottsdale, uh, really close to Jonathan's place of work <laughs> and, um, super simple concept. Nona means grandmother. Uh, it is named after a chef's grandmother who actually taught him how to cook, but also taught him patience in the kitchen and the, uh, the importance of food really. Um, and, a little four foot eight. Italian machine, little Sicilian machine, woke up at 4 a.m., baked bread, you know, made preserves and pasta and just kind of crazy. Is she really that tiny? She was little. And by the time that she passed, she was even smaller. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but she had, she was massive in strength. Um, that girl could... Roll whip. pasta like the best oh, of them. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, if for, for, you know, she passed when she was over 80, but if for at least 60 years of your life, you've actually made bread every single day of your life. Man, I mean... Your forearms are pretty I was tough. I say, her waving that... was that roller, rolling pin around? Yeah, the Probably rolling all the time pin. pointing it at people yeah, builds no. up biceps. <laughs> yeah, but see, you have to understand that in the Italian culture, the, the nonna, uh, is the, she spoils. And so yes. Chef never got a spoon or a rolling pin. It was always like he doesn't, you know, he's the perfect little man and he does nothing wrong. And, <laughs> My grandma you know. would probably say the same thing. <laughs> no, serious. I mean, it's it's a very, you know, it's it's what they do. Yes. You know, they love unconditionally. And so we wanted the Nona, you know, name to transfer into that. Um, it's unconditional love expressed through food. Um we are two very different individuals from very different backgrounds, um, and we love being sort of urban gypsies, um, <laughs> and we love that concept. Um, and so we realized that it doesn't matter what what, what your your background is, your you know from a from a from a race or ethnicity standpoint, your grandma is always the bomb. Like she is the best. Yeah. Um, regardless if you're Jewish or Polish or Italian or Mexican or Irish, grandma is like amazing. Oh yeah. I could show you pictures of my four foot 10 grandma and making pierogies and you know, we've talked about it before. It's, it was always amazing when you knocked on her door, you'd hear the pots and the pans rustling. Oh, yeah. Then she'd open the door. She'd be like, oh, I'm cooking already. Yeah. <laughs> no, <you laughs> Meanwhile, the water isn't boiling. <laughs> Like, it's like, I got stuff on the stove. Come on in. It's like, all right, Grandma. I mean, she was just always so giving and yep. always hospitable. Exactly. And so that's kind of, we wanted to take the essence right from the name into the restaurant. And, and that's what we strive to do every day at Nona. Um, everything's made from scratch. Um, we try to keep our menu super seasonal. Um, 
you know, chef heard heard some feedback because we took, for example, asparagus out of uh, the Campanelli pasta, which is like crack for some people that I know. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah. Uh, Hi, Sarah. And so every, you know, every time that she, that he changes something because of seasonality, he, people are like, but why are you doing this? And Chef's like, it's not good. It's not good. I don't want to put it in the pasta dish. And so, you know, we try our best to do that. Um, This, we need people like you in this state because this state and this city has been so overrun with corporate restaurants that put out this cookie cutter product every single week and every single month. And their goal for years was to duplicate the menu nonstop and always do the same menu. And to them, that was a, a way to success. And the culture is now changing. And especially right now, people care about where the food comes from. They're caring more and more about what's in season. But you can't change the customer's opinion unless the restaurateurs start to push it and start to make it a, a a thing on the forefront, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we really need people like you to do that. And people are going to balk at you probably about changing it, but you have to explain to them it's not in season. I don't want to give you a, a sub standard product right now. Like I can, this is in season. I want to use these root vegetables are in season. I need to use them. Absolutely. And I think that it also, um, if you explain as well that it, not only is it not in season, it is, it will not taste the way that it should. B, it will be incredibly expensive and it'll be reflected in the price that you're going to pay. If we get into the cycle of seasonality with food, then, you know, prices stay within a normal range. Um, You know, something that gets me super worked up is, oh, I want to eat all organic and wild cut, you know, wild (laughs) caught fish. And it's like, well, great. You are going to pay $50 for a piece of halibut. Oh, well, that's super expensive. Well, I understand, but you want organic, wild, you know, all these things. You're, you need to be okay with paying the price for that. Um, sometimes, you know, we have to make some concessions. You know, some things are not organic. Not everything can be organic because it's unfortunately super expensive as a restaurateur to buy all organic. I don't think that anybody's <laughs> doing it really in the Valley, even if they advertise like they are. I don't think they are. Um you know, I'd rather, we'd rather go for seasonal, you know, seasonal, we know our butcher, you know, we use a local butcher that has been in town forever. Do we know that it's, you know, all these certifications? No, but it's, we'd rather go with the local guy. If you, if you're getting it from the local guy, you already know you can trust him. Absolutely. Versus just getting it from a big factory. Absolutely. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, that's just one of those things that it's going to take some time to push the people in Arizona to understand that. And there are some great restaurateurs doing it, and there's more and more popping up. And I think the more of y'all that come and pop up around here, the more people are going to get seasonality. Um, do you note on your menu that this is spring menu, this is fall menu, this is this menu, or is it just this is what we have? No, we don't. Okay. That's a good idea, though. I was just curious. Thanks, D. <laughs> it is one thing I do appreciate with a lot of restaurants is the more people who I walk in, it's not the same menu. Because if it is the same menu, obviously after a while and you go to the same place over and over, it's like, well, I guess I'll just get the usual. And I don't think that's a really good term to always be using is I'm going to get the usual. I mean, Sarah finally branched out from the Campanelli. And now that she's actually trying all the different things on her menu, she's loving it more and more. And then she comes back one day and there's something not there or it's tweaked just enough. She goes, oh, it's still a risotto. Oh, but this time it's squash instead of mushrooms. Oh, I'm going to try that now again. And it's new. 
semi-similar product, but it's new. Mm-hmm. Versus if you go to P.F. Chang's, you get the same thing over and over and over and over and over. It's not really going to change. And there's very, I can only think of a handful of restaurants right now that have seasonal menus at this point. And they're all fantastic. And the price isn't any different than if I went to, you know, a chain restaurant that's really big and well-known. So it's, it's nice. <laughs> so being urban gypsies, your, uh, your menu is a very eclectic. Indeed. You know, it's the first time I went in there, I was kind of blown away because I we had not met. I sat at the bar randomly and I was meeting John and Sarah there. And I was like, wait a minute, it's Italian, but they have sushi. Yes. But it's not crudo. It's actual sushi. Indeed. And I was kind of blown away by it at first. But then after I had the meal, I was like, this was amazing. Like, I like the fact that I can have two or three different types of cuisine in one meal and have it all be produced well. You know, where, where did Chef come up with this, the idea of doing such a unique, diverse menu? So um, being that we're kind of from all over and have had the opportunity to experience many different things and countries and cultures, um, Chef is actually the runner-up of the World Sushi Competition in 2015. Now, um, but he's not Asian. He is not. That's that's pretty amazing. How many people were in that competition that were not Asian? That's so probably the it good was question. funny you say that. We actually think that that had something to do with, <laughs> with the decision. Wink, wink. Um, he has throughout his life. He actually learned um, to. He he was attracted to sushi when he was still in Venezuela, and then he went to Madonina di Pescatore, which is an Italian, uh, very well known restaurant. Um, spearheaded by Chef Moreno Cedroni, and he uh, has this amazing use of fish. So Chef is kind of in love with fish. He's sort of a fish master, or a vegetable whisperer, as I like to say, (laughs) because he can cook vegetables that I will eat any day, all day. But anyways, um, so this started his love with fish. Um, And so he started, you know, going deeper into the concepts and... uh, and he was actually the uh, the executive sushi chef for the Buddha Bar in Monte Carlo. He opened that restaurant in 2000, I think, eight. Um, and he was there for uh, close to eight, eight and nine years. Um, and so uh, he, uh, this is something that is very dear to him. He's incredibly talented when it comes to that because he brings that fusion you know, this is this is a child of, of many worlds, and so he he is able to not only produce uh, super picky about fish and, and preparation and production and all that, but the flavors that he combines are pretty amazing. Um, so that's where the sushi comes from. We we felt like, you know, he loves doing pasta because this is what to him love equals pasta in a way, um, but sushi equals freedom, and so that is why he. You know, he, he goes down that route and he's incredibly talented when doing that. And so we felt like it was, we have to have sushi. Are you kidding me? How many times can you, you know, have sushi from somebody that's incredibly talented like that? And so um, Phoenix, and I don't know if you've noticed this, guys, but Phoenix used to have a lot of sushi places. And now all of a sudden there's not that many. It's weird because in my, it seems like there's a lot more now. I mean, just from like what I've seen, but they're all fast foody like it's they they have the little bar set up they quickly chop something up they roll something up and then it's out like you get it almost instantaneously from ordering it like i think that doorbell i think that uh at some point in some time i started seeing that 
there's the occasional random sushi joint that pops up. And it's actually relatively decent versus like the guys who just, you know, throw eel on everything or eel sauce on everything and then as much soy sauce as humanly possible. And you're like, okay, this all tastes the same now. And so I couldn't remember who it was with, but when you told me that one morning, you're like, oh, we've got the sushi guy coming out from LA and we're going to have a night. That was one of the best sushi things on the planet. Hey, chef. (laughs) So I was seriously one of the best tasting things on the planet at that point I had had. And that's when I was like, okay, so that's how it can be. Whether it's a real thin style versus the actual roll was amazing. Yeah. He at least could have came with food. I know. Seriously. (laughs) Where's the food? It's his day off, guys. It's the one day off he gets. Please sit. (laughs) Join us. So speaking of chef, the chef just showed up. (laughs) They're, they're, something about chef's ears. They must have known that we were talking about this whole time. Yes. I was like, oh, I must go. <laughs> I must go. So we also, uh, one thing I do love about your place is the cocktails that you make. So it's one of my favorite things going in there is that every time I walk in, you know me well, you're like, oh, all right, I want a mezcal drink. And you'll sit behind the bar for a good like couple minutes just staring at things. Like, right, what am I going to use today? Oh, I've got this fresh thing here. Oh, I've got some juice I can squeeze. Oh, I've got this new drink. Try this. And you come over, put it down. Like, all right, what do you think? And every time I think they've been fantastic. So I'm a big fan of that. So with that be mind, what did you bring for us today? Oh, all kinds of yummies. So uh, I actually brought in a couple things for us to taste. Um, and what I was explaining to you earlier was that half of what I brought is actually from the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, where my mother is from. And then the other half is actually from the north, where I grew up. Um, and so the, the items from the Yucatan Peninsula are uh, a couple cordials, so uh, after-dinner drinks um, that have been around or are derived from a lot of uh, Mayan drinks. And then the stuff from the north is very raw and very desert plant-oriented. So we have some bacanora, we have sotol, and then we have shtaventum. I love that last one, Stabantun. Because when you first said that, You're I was like, like is this a German drink? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, nope, it is a Mayan drink. All right, so John, I'm going to let you pour these because I really want to try these. Yeah, now. which one Which one should we start with? Oh, boy. I think that we should start with Bacanora because that's where I grew up. And that's uh, that's made in Sonora in a, uh, a north uh, northern state of Mexico. Uh, it can only be made in Sonora. It is made uh, made from an agave. Um, it is roasted underground for about 36 hours. Um, it is fermented wild yeast in a stainless steel for about 8 to 10 days. And uh, then that's distilled two times. Um now, are you serving this in your restaurant? Yes, yes. So I actually, uh, we've gotten into some marital quarrels uh, because I, I like bringing in things that maybe, uh, you know, are a little obscure and are not super commercial and not a lot of people are going to walk into the bar and say, oh, you got Bacanora, pour me a shot. Odds are they've never heard of it. And so um, I have about 15 different types of mezcals. We have Sotol, we have uh, Bacanora, we have all these cordials from all over the world. And, you know, they're not the most financial, you know, 
amazing decisions but it's, it's the same okay. thing with my wine collection okay. my girlfriend constantly is like why are you spending so much money on one bottle of wine when you know you can make a car payment with that i'm like but it's so good i know <laughs> That's there's, why. There's, you know what for me it's something it's about teaching people and, and educating people about all the stuff that's out there that we, you know, we, we tend to be such creatures of habit and, and that's what we do with the wine list as well. Um, you know, we're get out of your comfort zone, man. I always say, you know, if you, if I go to a restaurant expecting to have one thing and you talk me into something else, it makes that experience more memorable. Absolutely. If I'm going in there expecting to have mezcal and you pour me, I can't even pronounce Bacanora. it. Bacanora. Yeah. I'm I might leave there and tell 50 friends that I had this drink at that restaurant, whereas if I just had a Mezcal drink, I might just leave saying, not even promoting it, because I can have a Mezcal drink anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's the people that kind of push the limits are the ones who start the talking points. Yeah. Um, have you worked with the United States Bartenders Guild, the USBG, to let them know that you're doing this kind of stuff? I have not, no. So... You know, there's a real strong cocktail culture right now in Phoenix. It's actually stronger here than anywhere else in the nation. Um, they do a lot of competitions. They are There's a camaraderie right now amongst a lot of the cocktail people where they want to help promote each other. They will work in each other's restaurants and bars. And having a cool cocktail list, maybe something you should reach out to them and let them know that you're, you have something that's cool, that you're doing something different, because you might get the cocktail people then coming to your bar more. And then this way, when they go back to their bar to work, they're going to talk about your bar to the patrons while they're sitting at their bar. Yeah. Plus, it's all, for me, it's all like learning new things. I think in this industry, sometimes we get so like in the runt, you know, like, ugh, the same thing. And to, let's... I always say that people take the easy route way too often. Correct. It, it's, Do it's, it with vodka, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, for me, it was wineless. I've been in the Italian wine industry for 10 plus years and I've always pushed funky Italian wines. You know, I spent my years pushing the Kerners, the Silvaners, the Lagrine, Marzamino, you know, I mean, all these funky Italian wines, whereas people are like, well, do you have Pinot Grigio? Yeah. You're Yay. Like, Yay. It's like if Jonathan and I but go. you do. You get the weird, funky Pinot Grigio exactly. that was orange. And then yeah. I started, then I started yeah. pushing like Romato style Pinot mm-hmm, Grigios mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. were a little different or barrel aged Pinot Grigios that oh, were a little uh-huh. creamy and round and. We're just different, had complexity, but it's still pushing a rock up the hill. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, and it's, you got to hand sell it. Yeah. And, and some places are not interested in training their staff into, into hand selling, which is, I think, a horrible so mistake. So important to how, have your staff know every detail of a lot of things. Absolutely. How many seats do you have in the restaurant? 42 inside and 38 outside. And you probably run then... Eight servers, seven servers, Max. <laughs> Was that a joke? <laughs> in, I mean, a, in a dream world. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I have three power machines. Three power machines. That's all Not I all need. All three of them. <laughs> I mean, every time I've been there, you've been running around. You, I walk in, you make me a drink behind the bar, I sit down, you're bringing food to the table, you're hugging and kisses on, on the way out, like, you're just gonna do everything. Why not? I mean, you're the mom of the restaurant. It's the mom Chuck of on the in, it's dishwasher. Oh, yeah. Sous chef. Hello. Bartender, yeah. server, host. Peel potatoes. <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, I think that there, there's a huge misconception, you know, being a restaurant owner is not a glamorous, you know, endeavor. This is, you know, you, you get a... Put your elbow grease in there, unless you were, you know, backed up by a 
huge corporation. And in that case, you have all the money in the world to, to yeah, hire. But then you're limited by what you can and can't do. Absolutely. You can't have chef making sushi and Italian food at the same time. Correct. You got a bean. Or switching up fresh vegetables. You got a be- You get a bean counter up in an office telling you you can't have these liquors and you can't buy good fish. You, hey, why buy good fish? You can buy the cheap stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah, it tastes the same. From no. a major distribution company. Ugh. Yeah, so that's, there's nothing try? worse than getting fish and you have that fishy smell to it because you're like, that's been there for a few days. And as someone who worked at a P.F. Chang's and another commercial place, I knew when we had fish a little too long, you'd be like, that doesn't look good. They're like, no, it's fine. Just throw it on the grill, sear it up, and it'll be fine. And just Put like, some oh. garlic in there. Sear it with, <laughs> we've got a whole bucket of spices. Just coat it and oh. throw it out. And you're like, well, then you can't taste anything but the 20 pounds of black pepper on it. Yeah, he mm-hmm. had Arizona cooking, unfortunately. Oh, wow. Maybe we'll change it. Oh, that's good. That is really smooth. You got that? Yeah, that's why I put that there for that, just in case. I'm not going to drink all of that, but I'm probably going <laughs> to. So it's, I thought this was interesting on the sink. It gives you mm-hmm. every single ingredient from the origin, when it was harvested, the oven it was roasted in. It has every single thing on it. And then on the backside, I thought this was unique. Did Mexico have prohibition as well at some yes, point? Yes, we did. I'd like to talk about that. Yeah, what? please do. It says during prohibition, mm-hmm. they hid their stills throughout certain areas. I didn't realize Mexico had a prohibition. Time. I didn't either. So, yes, we did. Uh, we had a president, Elias Calles, who uh, was super religious and thought that, you know. In Mexico? No. Yeah. <laughs> and so he thought that it was not a good idea to have this really strong alcohol being made by those crazy people in the north. Um, luckily, actually, what we're tasting, actually, the family has been making it for five generations, so they actually hit it during prohibition. Thank goodness, right? Because their product is pretty pretty amazing. That was really tasty. It's very similar to a mezcal. It is. It is. We're still in the agave. You know, we're still in the fermenting. We're still in the distilling. Um, but it is made in Sonora, which technically does not qualify as a mezcal region. Um, and it is made by one of the agaves that does not qualify in the mezcal agave making process. Um, so it's just considered an agave spirit? I guess that you would, I mean, you know, if we're not picky, it would be a type of mezcal because it's the same process with the same plant, but it cannot be technically called mezcal. So like us calling sparkling wine instead of champagne because yeah. it wasn't made in champagne, mm-hmm. but it still bubbles in the end. <laughs> Correct. So what are you mixing this with at the restaurant? Like what kind of cocktail would you make? I would actually, with with some of these mezcal and, and sotol, which we'll speak about a little bit later, um, anything that is earthy, I, I feel like we have to complement it with spices that are similar. Uh, orange goes very well. Cinnamon goes very well. We have to understand also where this comes from. This comes from uh, Aconchi, which is a, an, an area that is super gets super cold. <laughs> and so you need to have things that warm you up, you know, um, so anything that is warming in the spicing world, or any juices that you know you would you would pair with something warm, um, and quite honestly, sometimes you could just have that alone. It, oh yeah, is that a normal tradition for? Because you gave me some the orange with the cinnamon. Is that specific to tequila or agave, or is that just like how like some Americans put the orange in like a blue moon or something like that? Is that was just kind of gimmicky, or there was like nope, mm, there's an actual no, there's there's there, you definitely have a reason for it. It's normally served with uh, mezcal is normally served with uh, oranges and uh, sal de gusano, which is the little warm you know, mushed up with a little salt in there. And the whole yeah, the idea, worm. the little worm, you know, 
let's play homage to the low warm. Um, cleanses the palate, but it also brings some of the some of the nuances of the of the uh, mezcal when you're drinking it. And and I've actually changed it up because I feel that when you have a um, when it sits in a clay pot, and I think that that's what you refer to when, when we've tried um, clay. Yeah. Uh, we tried a naroqueño, I think that was uh, distilled in an olla, which is a method where, where it actually sits in a clay pot. Um, by putting the, the cinnamon in there, you really bring out the clay. Um, and so I actually like to have people taste that with cinnamon rather than sal de gusano because it just brings out the warmth in a different way. See, we always talk about how we throw flavors at each other, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, now I get it. As soon as you even said cinnamon, and I was like, that would totally work with this. It almost oh, has yeah. like a little cinnamon characteristic. I still can't say that word. Cinnamon in me. Cinnamon in me. Cinnamon It's funny. It's, it's a real popular thing going right now is uh, the amount of amphores, so clay pots, uh, being used in winemaking. Uh, a lot of people are buying these relatively good size ones because they can only get so big being shipped from Italy. And uh, it's making a huge difference on the style of the wine that comes out. And then if you put it into a huge, like a French oak barrel, you know, you get a lot of cinnamon characteristics for it. So I'd be intrigued to see what that's going to be like. Because if it's pulling all that clay pot flavor out, I guess that's, that would be a great hand-in-hand thing for oak. That makes me want to try that. Because I see these amphores everywhere. And people, a lot of winemakers I talk to go, yeah, you know, there's the egg, there's stainless steel, and they have little things. But they're all excited about clay pots as being like, this is amazing and what it can do for wine like it's a huge difference so i wonder i'd love to try a mezcal or tequila done and this is stainless steel here's a clay pot and then you know here's bathtub area (laughs) from our grandfather's house we we can go that rabbit hole pretty easily i mean i have i have enough at the restaurant to to do that (laughs) but um and i think that it totally changes it i mean once it hits clay and then you know that's mostly with mezcal i mean this is actually um it's stainless steel. Some of these could be aged in, in barrels and in bourbon barrels and all that kind of stuff. And then you bring in your vanillas and your caramels and all that kind of stuff. Um, so at the restaurant, have you done any sort of cocktail dinners or any sort of wine dinners, pairing dinners? We have. Yeah, we uh, we did a port paired dinner that was honestly, it, it was amazing. Um, so we paired a port with literally food from all over the world. Uh, we had, uh, chile nogada, which is a traditional Mexican dish, which will turn out beautiful. Um, we had some Moroccan influence in there as well. Uh, we had a, a Thai, uh, uh, thai panacotta, Thai tea panacotta in there. I mean, we went really crazy with flavors. That's awesome. I love the way you didn't just you know, trap yourself into one type of cuisine. You know, the fact that you can do every type of cuisine. If there was just something that's in season or something you're passionate about, you could just roll with it. And you're not just stuck. We recently had our friend from uh, Crudo, who just went through a name change on the show. And Crudo is Italian sushi, but he found that with the name Crudo, he was stuck into one type of cuisine. And he wanted to do more stuff. And that was one of the reasons why he went with a name change, because it opened up more possibilities than just saying Crudo. Yes, yes. And sometimes I think that it's, you know, we do have that, oh, but you're an Italian place. Well, no, not necessarily. The fact that we make our pasta doesn't necessarily mean we're an Italian place. See, like the one rule that we have is whenever we make something in Nona, it needs to be researched and it needs to be done the right way. So, for example, for uh, the winter menu, we actually had a Oaxacan black mole. 
That stuff was so good. I mean... How long did it take to make it? Two two days. I mean, it, you know, you roast everything. There's 14 ingredients in there. You grind everything. You make a chicken stock. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is it is the final product, and I think Jonathan can attest to it. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But you had to put your time in. And so when we decide to branch into these cuisines or these items or these dishes that we've never done before... We do a lot of research as to the true nature of doing it. And sometimes we look at each other and we say, do we have time to do this? Because, you know, if it's going to be a two-day situation, we're a small restaurant, let's be realistic, you know, from a business standpoint, is it something that will make a difference? Well, in the case of mole, it does because you can keep it. It keeps very well. I mean, there's a very famous restaurant in in Mexico City that actually keeps their mole for 2,000 days. (laughs) Um, and it is, it's a Michelin star restaurant. I mean, all they serve you when you go there, you get a bowl of this mole and two corn tortillas, handmade tortillas. And it's that, That's it? Was yeah. that the guy that was just on the Netflix special? Yeah. The, the, Pujol. Yeah. It was the, the final table. They had like the best <laughs> chef from different regions of the world. Yeah. And they had these, these Michelin star chefs on that had to recreate a famous dish from that area. The final episode, they had each chef with their signature dish, and his signature dish was his mole that was, yeah, it was like a two-year or five-year mole or whatever. And, and it was just, it was so simple. And they were like, you have to be so confident as a chef to do nothing but just serve a, almost like a sauce as the main plate. That is crazy. That's all that they do. But I mean, let's remember the words of Leonardo, right? The elegance, the simplicity, you know, creates elegance, or yep. elegance is simplicity. You know, sometimes you don't need much, and I think that we've... We're going back to that situation where, I mean, when we were serving mole at the restaurant, it was a beautifully seared chicken, I mean, a, a duck breast with mole. Yeah, that's, that's the it. that's the tray I had. I mean, I mean, I mean it's, it's one of the reasons we come back. I mean, he makes such great food that every single time, there's never been a plate we ever sat there and went, I'm not going to get that again. It's always, wow, that was something really cool. Like We started eating the eggplant burrata. Never had that, but we figured, you know what, we've had every dish that we've had so far has been great. We might as well branch and experiment with something we've literally never had. And now we pretty much get the eggplant brought every time we're in there. It's it's so refreshing to have such great fresh food made so well versus, again, walking into a chain and taking a wild guess and be like, well, this is going to be the same thing I had the last 77 times I was here. Thank you. All right. So let's try the next one. So I could see this working with like an Amaro. Like, it's like to blend it with an Amaro, especially something like a Montenegro that has that little mm-hmm. bit of oranginess to it, a little extra sweetness to kind of counter, counterbalance the, the heat of this. Um, I could see this being a great platform to mix in a cocktail. Oh, absolutely. But Kier- also, Kirti told me to do the uh, Mezcal ne- Negroni. Mm-hmm. So I got to remember to try yep. that next mezcal time. Mezcal Negroni. And then something that we have, we have a cocktail at the restaurant called uh, Aurora and the Roma. <laughs> and uh, Aurora and the Roma actually has uh, sherry. Uh, sherry and a little lemon balm and mezcal. But it could work with bacanora as well because you've got that sweetness and that round and deep, you know, and then you've got the smokiness of the of the spirit in there. I think it'd be fun to do a cocktail dinner where you're actually pairing cuisines from the region with the actual liqueurs Ooh, and doing yeah. like a combination project like that because a lot of people, a lot of the cocktail dinners that I've been to don't take into relation the... The, the family origins of the cocktail and the food. It'll be, oh, this is a great dish paired with a great cocktail, but there, there's no relation between them. Whereas to do like Mayan dishes with 
the Mayan cocktails, I think would be a really fun pairing. Yeah, and we actually did that. We uh, Last year, we brought uh, two Mexican chefs, and we did what we call four hands dinners, where a chef shares his kitchen with, uh, with a chef, and we do half of the menu is known a menu and then half of the menu is with the chef and and that is how uh, I actually started getting involved in bringing in um, Mexican wines because I said I am not going to have a four hands dinner with Mexican chefs and and serve you know wines from all over the world I need to bring in Mexican wines because that tells a story I think that we need to going back to paying homage to you know, the history and the anthropology of food, it just goes hands in, hand in hand. You know, you, you if you are going to provide, you know, food from a certain part of the world, then you should you should do your due diligence and, and pay true homage with, with what goes with this food, which is the terroir, which is what the people drink, you know. And so, yeah, that would be fun because Sonora has pretty amazing food that has not been explored. No, not at all. Well, we had this conversation on our last episode about how people assume Italian food out here is a very specific style, whether it's, you know, red sauce, big dishes. But if you actually go cheese. to Italy, yeah, cheese, Parmesan on everything. It's 20 different cuisines. Yeah. You go out there and you're like, you'd be blown away by how different everything is. And I think a lot of people out here assume Mexican food is a burrito, a fajita, quesadilla, carne asada, like that's it. Street tacos and things like that. Not that it's bad, especially because we have a lot of great street taco places, but you get down all of a sudden into the Yucatan area and it's probably what mostly a lot of like fish seafood driven things maybe, or any coastal area will be more versus what you make everywhere else. (laughs) Absolutely. And we have to remember that, um, Mexican cuisine is actually uh, part of the UN's uh, World Heritage Protected. Uh, you know, it, it's it has given you know the world so much ingredient-wise, preparation-wise, diversity-wise that it is actually protected by the UN and the UNESCO as a heritage for humanity. So there's actually a forum every year and we were fortunate enough to be invited um, last year. It's a forum where people get together and talk about Mexican food and go into ingredients. I mean, Chef and I sat into a 90-minute seminar on crickets. (laughs) I've never tried some of those. (laughs) I mean... I, I have not gone there yet. Oh, I tried them. I mean, there's an entire, it was, you know, crickets or or corn. I mean, we have a huge issue in Mexico with corn because most of the corn that is now being used is actually so genetically modified that it has nothing to do with what the original plant was. And so it changing, when you change something as basic, you know, as corn is to the Mexican culinary culture, everything starts to change. And, and, and that is why, thankfully, Mexican cuisine is preserved by, you know, this organization so that hopefully it will never happen. But um, I, I am Mexican, and uh, I, am, I am very embarrassed to say that I know very little of Mexican food because it is so vast that I don't think that anybody can say, you know, with their hand up, I know everything there is to know about Mexican food. I'm still learning, and I think that as the Nona project has evolved, 
I have become even more interested in learning and knowing where I come from and the the insane possibilities, uh, the plethora of possibilities that come with Mexican food. Your passion is contagious when you're talking about food right now. I mean, she you're, sounds like you with wine. You're, you're lighting up. Like you can see it in your eyes and your face. I wish we were on video right now so people could see how you're just lighting up talking about food and the culture and the history of Mexican cuisine because most people don't realize it. But it comes across in your voice, just so you know, like because you're talking about it. I love to eat. I think that has something to do with that. <laughs> so do we. That's for sure. Day. Let's move to Sotol. Yeah, Sotol. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about this one? So Sotol is actually, um, it's from Chihuahua. So it is the state that is east of Sonora. That is where my father was born. Also known for its great dogs. Also known for their little dogs. <laughs> say well, great. Well, have you been to the taco place right around the corner here? Yeah, Chihuahuas. Yeah. yeah, Chihuahuas. So he's actually from 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 Chihuahua. It is a. Uh, it used to be where most of the beef of the U.S. you know came from. This is a, a beautiful. Uh, it's a desert. It's the biggest state. Um, it's pretty amazing. So Sotol is actually made from a, a plant called desert spoon or sotol, it is not an agave. Um, so, it, you know, it can only be made in Chihuahua, Coahuila, and Durango. Um, so then again, we go into denominations, right? Just like mezcal can only be made out of, you know, from these eight states, or tequila can only be made in tequila. Uh, sotol is Chihuahua, uh, Coahuila, and Durango. Um, very interesting taste here. Um, it is known as a mezcal, even though by DNA analysis, it is not an agave. Uh, but we actually have these plants all over our, our gardens. I think that you mentioned that you actually have one that's dying as we yeah. speak. Yeah, wow. That's got a very distinct nose to it. This has got a richer, smokier flavor. Like, it, it's almost as if you had... You were you roasted off a, a something on you know on your smoker, and the first one was kept for two hours, and the second one was kept for eight hours. Like oh, yeah. it's it has a much deeper, distinct, robust, smoky flavor, especially on the palate. I mean, and I'm not crazy here, but does anybody smell salami? I mean, I kind of wake up smelling salami. Oh, well. <laughs> it's one of my weaknesses <laughs> in life. That's what <laughs> That's, happens when you grow up with an Italian next door. Yes. Uh huh. And I worked for Italians forever, too. So for me, my weaknesses are Soprasada, Capicola, and Prosciutto. Like, that's, there you go. I always say that what, Prosciutto's my kryptonite. What's the uh, Spanish one? The Leon? Jamon Iberico. Jamon yeah. Iberico. The that, what was, that was the one I sent you a picture of? Jabugo. That's what you're thinking. I think I was about. telling you. I thought it began with an S, though. Serrano? That might have been Oh, it. Serrano. Yeah, because yeah. they had it up at a Costco for 90 bucks for the leg. Like, just nice. the leg. And so Todd from Atlas, we were sitting there. I got a picture of it. He just shoved it as a leg thing and just... For like two weeks, just cutting this thing and just nice. eating it. It was so unhealthy and so good. Unhealthy. Potato, potato, those Spaniards live really long. So well, it makes me ahead. happy, so therefore I think I'll live longer by being happier. Okay, even if I'm eating, you know, straight pig meat. Well, cheers to that. This, yes. Yeah. Th this literally smells like it just came off a campfire. Like, yes. this has a very strong campfire and, like, There's taste, nose. There's to this to me. Like I'm getting like like almost like a foresty pine. I mean, it reminds like me of camping. Yeah. That's what it, yeah. it really does. And yeah. honestly, you're right about both of these. If I was out camping, or if I was, you know, in 
Minnesota and I'm out there at the lake and I'm cold, these would be perfect to warm me up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, you're right. That smokiness of that comes out. It smells like, or it tastes like I'm sitting in front of my grandparents' fire pit or what? Not fire pit was where I'm looking for. Uh, Campfire? Like, no, um, in your house. <laughs> oh my God. Basically your chimney. Anyway, so fireplace. Yeah, fireplace. fireplace. <laughs> Come on, I John. can never use your words. That's like the hundredth time I have not remembered fireplace. Because I've never like we never had one until we moved into this house. But uh, it smells like they took like fresh wood, threw it in there, cooked it, and that's what it tastes like. This is tasty. I really like this. Now I've used amaros and some spirits with cooking. Could would you ever want to use something like this in your cooking? It would be too powerful. Maybe, maybe for like a drizzle or something. I think that it also, you have to look at your protein. You know, I think that you have, in order to use this, I think that you have to have a protein that stands. I mean, you can't, a, a, a dinky little fish is not going to do. No, this is going to overpower you know? anything. But let's, let's talk about, you know, let's think about a bison. You know, let's think about deer. Let's think about things, you know. Venison would be great. You know, meats that will hold this would be really amazing. I'm starting to get that little itty-bitty meaty characteristic. And I think that the interesting part in going back to your super good idea about doing, you know, paired dinners is that, you know, there's a lot of deer in this area in Chihuahua. You know, you've got like the long, uh, the longhorns, what are they called? The elk? No, the ones that have the... Oh, uh, rams? Yeah, like, you know, rams and all, you know, and you have deer and everything. That would be interesting to pair with something that an animal that actually lives in the same terroir where, where this plant comes from. Can you guys buy deer or elk or anything out here? Because I thought you can't have game meat like that. Um, it, you just have to check your sources. I mean, it has to come from a source that is USDA approved, obviously. But there's a couple of companies that actually, the, the people that we get our fish from, they actually FedEx the fish directly from the boat, like literally awesome. as it comes in. Yeah, you guys have outstanding fish. It's and so good. I think they have game too. So it's a matter of looking into it. Because I've never seen elk on a menu. Uh, Atlas has had different ones over the years. They've they? also had venison on the menu before. Um, yeah, it's just having the right purveyor, I'm yeah. sure. Like I've had, yeah. you know, side-of-the-road deer jerky before. Oh, yeah, but no, no, no. <laughs> You're not calling up uh, Cisco Foods and getting yourself some uh, venison. Yeah, if you are, it's not going to be very good. Yeah. And the other thing is we go back to the to the consumer, right? I mean, in this table, we have four four individuals that are okay with trying. But, you know, sometimes you put these things on a menu and they will sit there forever yeah. because people are like, oh, I don't want to try that. You know, and, and that's unfortunate, but... You know, in a situation where there's a where there's a paired dinner where you know you're going to go in to be out of your comfort zone, that might be the perfect way to introduce that meat. And it's about building up confidence in your clientele. Whereas, okay, they, they came and had two safe dishes. On the third trip, maybe they'll branch out and do something a little more fun. Or they get to know you and you recommend something that's out of their comfort zone. And then they go, okay, that's amazing. Then they go and tell all their friends, hey, they had this unique dish. It wasn't just a pasta dish. It wasn't just a, you know, it's that different experience. I mean, it's the whole point of the overall dining experience. I used to tell this to servers when I trained them. I said, you know, every single person comes in this restaurant to eat. Not every person comes in to get a cool bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. That's your job. Mm -hmm. Your job is to turn them on to something that they wouldn't normally get. When they say, I want a Pinot Grigio. You're to guide them down this path to give them a unique dining experience. They leave and tell their friends about it. Correct. Because if they just come in and get Pinot Grigio, bruschetta, and whatever, it's like, what's really? the, it's not exciting. No. That's you not. know, where you turn them on to something completely different. And I've worked at some pretty fun restaurants in town where they were pushing the limits. 
And I enjoyed turning people onto that stuff because you saw it was an eye-opening experience and they came back more often. Yeah. Well, I mean, I drink mezcal drinks at her place all the time now and I pretty much have never done that anywhere else. I think I've had two in my entire life and I was like, well, okay, I'll try it. And that's pretty much mostly what I get at this point is mezcal-driven drinks. I don't do that anywhere else. It's like when I go to Brandon's place, I always have it make me do like a scotch drink. I, I love the smokiness of it because it's so defined in this, mm-hmm. you know. With, with mezcal, it's can sometimes taste a little almost like fake smoky to me. Yeah. Um, I don't want to use the word liquid smoke, but there's a difference between going out and a campfire out back your house and seasoning. Yeah. Well, I think that it's also because mezcal is super broad. I think it's 34 different types of agaves, eight different regions where you can make it. So, I mean, I almost see it as wine. You know, you have these varietals, you have these terroirs that are completely different. So if you have a tobala from, you know, Durango, it is not going to taste as a tobala from Oaxaca. With Sotol, I mean, it's very specific. It's from, it's from three straight states and from one plant. Um, so I think that, you know, one day when we go down the rabbit hole with mezcal, we will definitely see the, I mean, you have mezcals that are no joke minty. I mean, minty, herby, you go into uh, Durango and they're minerally, it's like licking a slate, you know, rock. Not that I've ever done that before, but... I may have done that before. I have. Done. (laughs) Check. For the SOM exam, maybe, you know, you gotta do it. I've done that white chalk powder, a little tasting. I'm like, oh, that's just the worst. He's seen it for me where we've been trying wines and I run to my spice cabinet and I grab all these spices and we're smelling the spices trying to figure out which one is in the wine. I know. Yeah. And all of a sudden you nail something, you're like, there it is. Yeah. Good job. That's cool, though, that uh, agave can pick that up, that it actually works well with its terroir, whether it's on, you know, slate soil or if it's downgrown in a southern area, wherever, that all of a sudden you're not having the same exact drink every single time. Those nuances can make one heck of a drink. And then those nuances are actually um, pushed to their limits once you start the fermenting and the distilling because you know that certain agaves don't do well with like a clay pot distilling you know or 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 maybe do not need to be distilled twice whereas some of them do and so you know it's you sort of need to know your product as you do with a varietal of wine you need to know your product to know where you can take it you know, how audacious can I be? Can yeah. I, I mean, mezcal, you sometimes can throw a, a chicken breast on top of it while it distills. And you you say chicken breast? I say, yes, chicken breast. That's it's that called pechuga. pechuga. Uh, I want to and try it's one. pretty amazing. But, you know, it's, not all of them can withstand that. You know, you, you need to know your raw element. And Do you get to eat the chicken breast when it's done? No. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't know, know if it cooks it in there enough know. to eat. Hopefully next year I'll make it to a <laughs> Jamie's giving me I'll a face like you. he's literally grossed out right now. I mean, I think it sits there for a couple of days, so you don't probably know what it is. I've heard of it. John's talked about Pachuga before. I've never had it. I know little about it. I'm a wine guy by nature. It's okay. We'll change I'm you. learning. Yes, yeah, slowly but surely. Jay, Jamie's a wine person with fernet habits. There you go. I love Amaros. I like... Or Amaros, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. So stuff like Nonino. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big Ramazzotti fan. I like um, uh, Montenegro. Mm-hmm. I don't like the the overly bitter Amaros personally, mm-hmm. but I know chefs love Fernet. They love yeah, it. Chef, do you like kitchen, Fernet? Kitchen sh- handshake. A little bit. What's your What's your drink of choice? I prefer Amaro. Okay. Yeah, but I drink um, um, everything. 
Right. Anything. Anything. <laughs> Spoken like a real chef. <laughs> At the end of the shift, it is beer. Yes. But um, oh, yeah. He did. Yeah. Than, than the wine. It's yeah. the band, but beer is my more frequently drink. But it's, it feels so good when you get off work. It's just refreshing. Like, it's just that yeah. celebratory. Like, it feels good going down. It just, it's like instantly relaxes you. Yeah, we get off work at Suvino, and none of my employees will stick around and get wine. We go right next door to OTT or Patties and have beers. It's just like that hard day. Like, all right, it's beer first. Yeah. Well, there's a saying amongst winemakers is that it takes a lot of good beer to make a good wine. You know? Because winemakers, you're out there plowing the field all day long. The last thing you want to do is come have a glass of red wine after working in the fields. Yeah, Yeah, some of my best wine has been made off the back of Peroni. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. So, you know, okay beer. (laughs) So the, the last three are all from Maya. So they're from, the, from the Yucatan the area. Yeah. So the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, that's where, where the Mayan culture. Because Maya is not a place. I'm. Yeah. It's yeah. Two, two sips of spirits and I'm speaking tongues already. Oh, well, you were just there. What? <laughs> last November? How was it? It wasn't bad. I mean, it was, I was on the coastal area. Oh, so. Cancun? Yeah. Well, Playa Tulum, Loca. Cancun, Playa, good yeah, places for cocktails, man. True, but also very commercialized. Indeed. You know, one thing I've learned from traveling the world, I typically don't enjoy the commercialized areas because when you go to Italy... the tongs. That's what I needed. They're stuck together now. When you go to Italy and you're in, you know, Rome, I I can't stand Rome personally. I think to me, the Rome Rome is the Grand Canyon. It's beautiful to go and take some pictures... Then you're ready to leave and go do something else. It go, is insane. Go to the countryside. Go to Siena. Go to Panzano. Go to, you know, go up to the northeast or to the northwest. Go up to Alba. Go up to Genova. There's so much more to do in Italy than go to Rome. Go to Sicily. You know, go visit Etna. You know, go drink Etna Rosso. But when you're, I mean, t- to go and just be in a resort in Cancun, you're not really... No. experiencing any part of what Cancun has no. or what it's all about. You're not experiencing the cuisine. You're not experiencing the cocktails or no. the cultures. No. You're drinking crappy margaritas for free at a lobby bar. All inclusive. In a, yeah, it's just not, it's not, in the, to me, it's not actually being part of the culture. You know, I got in trouble once when I was in the Caribbean because I hopped in a random, they said, don't get in the random cabbies. And I'm like, Hopped in a random cabbie before you know it, I'm in this guy's house and is <laughs> like eating with his family. And I almost missed the cruise afterward getting back. But I had so much fun because I got a chance to actually see the inner workings of the city and the town and the food and the culture and the people. And I had a blast because I wanted to get out of this touristy area, the es- excursion or whatever it was. It was part of the cruise. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to do that last year and the year before. Um... Again, part of exploring my heritage a little bit, and I sort of fell in love with Tulum and, and Merida, which is the capital of, um, of Yucatan. Uh, what an amazing place. What an amazing place. Um, still one of those places where you can walk, you know, hand in hand at 2 a.m., and everybody says, hello, good evening. And we were actually freaked out about that. We're like, oh, my gosh, they're totally going to mock us. No, absolutely not. It is super safe. And it's an, it's an ama- amazing city to go to. I know Mexico's gotten a bad reputation amongst, you know, in America sometimes. But I've always had amazing times when I've been down there. I've been to some small towns. I've been through the interior. 
and I've met some of the most amazing people that are so gracious and courteous and want to share. And if you break down, they're going to jack up your car and fix your tire for you and will, you know, wish you well on your way. And give you some soup for the road. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird how you get this perception of what something is and you go visit it and it's completely different than the perception. One place I've never been is Mexico city. And I've, it's, it's on the bucket list because I've heard about the cuisine, the food, the culture. I've heard, nothing but amazing things about it. World Cup 2022 is Mexico, Canada, and USA, and the Mexican games are played in Guatemala, Monterey, and uh, or Guadalajara, Monterey, and Mexico City are the nice. three major games. Maybe, uh, maybe a trip we should go do. I heard an interesting fact that Mexico City is the, the highest altitude major city in the world. Yep, well, it's the biggest city in the world. And from a culinary standpoint, holy moly, that's all I can say. Mole. Mole, oh. <laughs> but I'm bumped. <laughs> that One more drink and then they start yeah. coming out. Dude, yeah. I, I love, what is this one? This is this the Stabentum. I've never had a nose change this much. Stabentum? Mm-hmm. Stabentum. It does. It sounds almost G- German or Austrian. German. Drink yeah. into Stabentum. And, and it smells like absinthe on the nose. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I need to have a little absinthe sugar thing here for it's, it it smells like um like ricard like uh pastis a little bit you've it got that anise like seed anise. yeah, yeah. Anise. is it yeah. anise or anise anise seed i think anise oh anise seed, seed. oh okay yeah. i was pronouncing the e like really long oh, it's the seed i was gonna say because it smelled like anise and and yep. coconut and absinthe all in the same exact time. Yep. So this is a fermented drink made out of the honey of the melipona, a bee, which is unfortunately a bee that uh, is going extinct. This bee actually has been used by the Mayas for a very long time. It has no stinger. So it's a very peaceful bee. So is it the Africanized honeybees then that are really the, the detriment to this do you know of? Because no. they're pretty aggressive. They are aggressive. They're Africanized bees, but it actually, the, that's not the pickle. The, the, the problem is the, uh, the fertilizers that are used. The pesticides. The and... pesticides, the fact that all the plants that these bees were normally, you know, using for, for honey um, are disappeared or modified and all the pesticides, I mean... Uh, slow food Yucatan actually is working very hard to bring back this type of bee because for the Mayan culture, this bee is pseudo-sacred. And uh, obviously we have a, a crisis of bees in the world, but for Mexico, this this would be, this would literally make people cry. Um, the honey of the melipona bee is actually used for healing purposes. Um, you can literally put it in your eye to heal cornea. You wow. can uh, put it, use it in ointments for, um, for uh, healing your skin, like burns and cuts. It has an antiseptic uh, characteristic to it. Um, and unfortunately, you know, as humans, we're, we're messing it up. <laughs> and and so, we turn around and distilled it. <laughs> yeah. It, well, yeah. So this bee actually um, takes the nectar from the morning glory plant, um, and it is actually mixed with the uh, anise seed, and it's fermented. I'm sorry, um, the honey is actually distilled, not fermented. But this is actually, so Stabentum actually is, is one of those things that started because the Spaniards, when they came in, they saw that the Mayans were, uh, were drinking this, this alcohol called uh, balche, which was actually uh, used in their ceremon- ceremonies. And it actually put them into a trance. 
um, because it was made with morning glory, which actually is an al- uh, an alkal- alkaloid. Um, so it's like LSA, like LSD. Is it? What am I thinking? I thought morning glory was poisonous. Yes, it is. It is. Okay. Indeed. This is like, doesn't that kill people? Yeah, it <laughs> does. Right. In the right amount. In the right amount. Okay. <laughs> or so I've heard. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I knew it was something. I was like, morning glory. I was like, I think that kills people. No wonder yeah. they're in trances. Yeah. And so this balche was, was what was the spirit that was being used for ceremonies. Um, and so that was sort of banned. And, you know, the, the Mayans came up with Stabentum, which was okayed. Um, and that's how it was born. Um, there's a lot of, of fables and there's a lot of stories uh, from a Mayan standpoint about stubborn tomb it was said to cover uh the grave uh area uh where a um so let me backtrack so there were two beautiful women in mayan folklore and one of them was like prim and proper and the other one had a little bit of a reputation but everybody know everybody knew that even though she had a little bit of a reputation, um, she was also a very kind-hearted woman who gave away most of her proceeds from not so fun activities or fun activities. It depends uh, on who you ask. We politely calling her a hooker. A ho. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so is that she, the Mayan word for it? <laughs> yeah, it probably starts with an X. <laughs> sh-ho, sh-ho. Sh-ho. <laughs> and so this ho, um, actually, when she passed away, they went to her tombstone and they realized that there were all these flowers. So these morning glory flowers that gave out this beautiful scent. And they said, look, you know, the gods have, have uh, you know, given her this beautiful place to rest that is full of this amazing scent. Whereas when the prim and proper girl passed away, um, it was covered with weeds. And so <laughs> there's, you know, there's a, there's a fable and there's a story and there's a tale that, you know. I love that. I love tales for why things yeah. are what they are. <laughs> and that just tells you that not all shows are bad. <laughs> this, they have to pass away before <laughs> everything goes So well. they get a f- nice smelling flowers in their tomb. <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, this, this would so make good. such a perfect little after dinner drink. Mm-hmm. Or even, I can have this as like an aperitivo. I can have mm-hmm. this as something in the beginning. I wonder. It's actually very refreshing. I was to say, if you could put even like a little like club soda lime. or something in there and a lime and like you make almost like a. Squeeze a half a lime in there. Almost make like a um, Aperol spritz kind of look mm-hmm, thing out of mm-hmm. it. Add a little liveliness to it. It would be a nice refreshing cocktail to sit on a patio with. Was this what they used to make? I, I thought I saw some where they make Mayan margaritas using this. Exactly. Okay. That's a Mayan what's margarita. The other, what's the other mix that would go into that? Just a lime. tequila of some Yeah, type? lime and some soda. Oh, okay. no, I would probably... So you don't probably, mix it. It's just by itself. I would just put it by itself. It's, yeah, yeah I'm trying I really to, like this. I'm trying to think of how to promote this to people and get people actually drinking more of this because this is fantastic. And I could see this yeah. taking off just because it's such a... It's made from a hooker. Just tell them that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, I mean, if you're doing it like with a dessert or something like that, make it part of the dessert where you actually like, this is our 21 and over dessert. Like you have to get, so you get the dessert with a little glass of this with it. So they're forced into it, maybe a little more expensive. Like it's a $12 dessert. So it's worked in with the cocktail. So they're forced to have this with it. So you're taking out the, well, I don't know if I want it. Well, you're getting it. (laughs) Every single person I've ever tasted on this 
loves it. Yeah. I feel like people who would like Sambuca or Absinthe would love this mm-hmm. more because this is like... Uzo It's Uzo. Mm-hmm. This is like a, a more restrained, better tasting version of it. It doesn't have that anger issue that... Mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Oh. I love it. And I some love of those that have, description. You know, yeah. it's this is a little. It's a little more mellow. I mean, I can actually sit around and enjoy this. Whereas it's delicate, yes, yeah. Probably and put I love the ice that. cube in it too. I think it made a huge difference. Yeah, I, I like it with with a little bit of ice. You could also um, mix this with coffee, so you can make a cafe corretto, you know, and just throw in some coffee in there. Like some really good coffee would I was, be nice. I was looking at his coffee mug saying, Good Ethiopian from that place we like. I have so many bags from AT Oasis at this point. Yeah. <laughs> love sure. that stuff. Now, this was, I think so far, I, I mean, as much as I love the Sotol, this is probably my favorite one so far. What's the alcohol level on this? I can't see. Is it 30, 35, 25? 35% alcohol. That's a lot more alcohol than I thought was in it. Like it tastes like it's about 25. Thank you, honey. It's they can, literally the ching. So it's it's distilled honey. They don't add the honey to this. Mm-hmm. This is from distilled honey. And then at, at some point they actually you get the honey do, characteristic. Yeah, they actually do correct it a little bit with some rum. Okay, so there's like a yeah. little blend of something else there, mm-hmm. but it's it's not an added sugar. I mentioned no. this is just the way it is. No, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I feel like this would be fun to do like a Mayan dinner where you do a couple dishes and each. One of the dishes is paired with one of these liqueurs, yeah. like on the side, to Ooh, actually yeah. turn people on to them and get them excited about it. Um, one of the chefs that actually visited us last year, Tomas, um, he makes a mango mousse with a stabentum drizzle. So, I mean, talk about just going exotic there. Could you reduce this at all? Yep, you could. And yeah. then I would finish it off. So I would probably reduce half of it because then you're going to lose the alcohol. And I think that the alcohol actually enhances the flavor of, of like the, the licorice and, you know, that, that kind of tone to it. I think that you would need to keep a little bit of the alcohol in there. But if you do like a half C. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. That's, Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm interested in the other ones now. Yeah. So what's, we'll get there in a second, but what are the other two? They're... So the other two are actually made um, in the same area. One is called Juana, which is actually made of, um, made from jackfruit. Um, super fun. And the other one is called Kalani, which is actually a roasted coconut rum liqueur. Um, super popular. Uh, any, I mean, seriously, every time that I've ever poured it, uh, women especially go nuts over it. Um, and the, uh, the Juana, I actually like it for cocktails. I think that it's a great, it's a great addition to cocktails. Oh. I mean, the big problem with these is if you see them on a back bar, you don't know what they are nope. and nobody's going to buy them. Like if I just sat at the bar and I saw those, I might ask what they are, but it's... Yeah, a distinct blue bottle for sure. That'd be the biggest problem is getting people to know what this is and getting them excited to order it. I fought the Amaro battle for years because mm-hmm. I used to represent Montenegro and nobody knew... It, and this is... Right now, Amaro's are going through a huge popularity explosion, and you're seeing more and more of them come to the country. You're seeing people start to get it and order more of them. But eight years ago, it like I said, it was like pushing a rock up the hill trying to get people to order Amaro. My best account in the state was Citizen Public House because he used it in his cooking. <laughs> yeah. It was in his meatloaf. It was his seasoning in his meatloaf. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I, he, they were buying 50 cases a year just to use his seasoning. And that was the best way I could find to sell it in the beginning. And now you're seeing it in a lot more places and people are using it in cocktails. It's but rage now. it was definitely challenging to build that brand and build that, that category up. 
Um, but I think it's just making it visible to people and getting people excited about it. And it's a talking point. You know, if I go there, if I went to Nona and I had a dessert and they serve this with it and forced me to have it, now I know what it is. Next time I go, I'm like, you guys have to have that dessert with that blue bottle. I forget the name of it, but you got to have it, you know? Stabentun. Stabentun. I'm actually excited. I, I was told how to pronounce that by you, obviously, versus me guessing, because that would have been a nightmare. It's okay. It, <laughs> Extabentun. That's what it looks like. Yeah, Extabentun. You can really taste the honey in that. You want too. me to rinse that out? No. I'm a professional. Yeah. Honestly, I don't even want to pour it. You don't have to. Don't no, have I'm going to switch glasses. I like that. <laughs> See, that. Chef. Whoa. All right, so. Let's go so I think we should go with the Juana now. And then we'll finish up so, with sweetness. And this is jackfruit? This is jackfruit. Have you ever cooked with jackfruit? No. Ugh, I don't like it. <laughs> Sorry. I, they I both saw looked at me like that. <laughs> they, Sorry. Yeah, I get her chef in the background. <laughs> Ugh, nope. It's stinky. Is that the stinky one? Yeah. Okay. It's also the size of like two footballs. <laughs> and I have a phobia of things that are pokey, so I actually could not so even be in the same area. They sold one of those at Sprouts uh, about a month ago, and I walked past it and I looked down. And I was like, "This looks like it came off an alien planet." Yep. And it was like, it's like maybe an alien like egg. yeah, sixty bucks. It was sitting there. It was huge. I'm like, who would buy this thing? I was like, that'd be kind of fun to serve it. And then I read about it. It was like it's one of the worst smelling fruits on the planet. Like, it is. Right, I think it's that. the nickname is death fruit because is it smells it like a cadaver. But it's actually used in a lot of vegetarian um, like meat, like fake meat almost preparations. Like you can make barbacoa out of it because it shreds really nicely. Huh. Um, and there was talk about a major uh, food chain actually using it instead of meat because it's much more, much, much less expensive. And so, I mean, you can do a lot of things with it. You just need to really know how to prepare you it. You know, it. it's like blowfish. Here you go. You, you, know, uh, you need to know what to do with it. Chef, are you able to do blowfish? No. No? Okay. Is there like a special license or something you have to do? To okay. <laughs> I was wondering that one. <laughs> Yeah, no, let's let's not experiment that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to die on that. It doesn't smell bad. Well, it's been distilled, so I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the last one smelled very much like anise. That's true. And honey, the other one tasted a lot like honey too. So where's jackfruit you, from? You you can hear all the ice bouncing around our glasses. It's right? cracking me up. Is jackfruit Mexican fruit? Central American fruit? Yeah, I think it's tropical. Tropical fruit in general. Oh, you got all the notes out. <laughs> I could see this working almost in like a pina colada type drink because it has that rum aspect. I could see it working like tiki drinks. Yes. Tiki drinks, yeah. Guanabana it's called in Mexico. What's it called? Guanabana. Guanabana. And we make water with it, like guanabana water, like horchata, mm -hmm. rice water. Um, we've tried making sauces with this at one point, I think, for a dessert. Um, it's Sorry, the lingering taste just hit me. It okay. It See reminds that? me of my grandma's house in a not friendly <laughs> way. <laughs> so I'm thinking this would be actually really good with a cocktail. I wouldn't really sip this like I would sip the Staben too. You know, but if, with some fresh squeezed, you know, Citrus. Latin Americans, you know, mm -hmm. citrus. I'm I'm thinking like I'm getting almost like a papaya, pineapple, papaya, pineapple, mango, mango and papaya are kind of the two things. It's almost like lingering out of this when I'm tasting this mm -hmm. too. It could it's probably just the flavor of the jackfruit lingering in the yep. background. 
But like I said, I, I almost think of something along the lines of like a tiki drink, something with a lot of fresh squeezed juices. This could work. Yeah. John just keeps making these funny faces. I really he didn't man. like it. Dude, he this has a flavor like coming out that I'm really not liking. Th- th- this is the man that drinks like peaty scotches and stuff that tastes like turpentine usually. So but this is not, I mean, <laughs> I, I think, in hospitals. <laughs> I think that that's the beauty of spirits. I mean, and, and I always say this to even the servers, you know, when we're when we're training. It doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter what the tasting notes say. For some people, it is it does not taste good. And, mean all and ten, that's that. You mean all 10 servers you're running on a Friday night? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the 14. The 14 of them. And the back. And, <laughs> yeah, the, oh, and the runners and the, yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. just, that's just the front, the front servers, not the oh, back yeah. servers. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I've... The joys of the restaurant business, though, I would never give it up for anything. Like, I don't work in it now, but the reason I got in the wine business is so I could still be part of it because there's something about the hustle and the bustle of the restaurant business. I help out my buddy at Atlas Bistro once in a while. We do private events once in a while, and I'm always like, man, I miss it. I do. It's the, the shifts go by super fast. There's always something to talk to. I mean, it, there's something about it. Like, once you're in it, it's really tough to get out of it. True. I. Uh, it sounds like, to me, the way people talk about Chicago. I know more people from Chicago, yeah. and they talk about how amazing Chicago is and how amazing, like, it's the best food place, it's the best hustle and bustle, like you're saying, but they all nobody here. goes back to Chicago. They go yeah. back for a little bit. They always talk about but they all live here. They're like, we're done. We're done with Chicago. We're out. That was My restaurant experience was so much fun. I met most of my best friends there. I would never give it up for anything, but I never really want to work in it again, with the exception of like owning something into it. But like the server side, the back of the kitchen, I'm like, all right, <laughs> I just step back from that one for I need to take a long sabbatical for me to do that. I think it's definitely not for a faint of heart. But you got to want it. Like you, you have really to gotta really, be driven for it. You have to really like it. Yeah. And, and if you don't, please not be, don't be in it. I think that there is nothing worse than a restaurateur or restaurant manager or a server that does not truly love their job because please, please it like come, it. It comes across and everything. love people. If you Leave don't like it. people, restaurant industry or the service industry is not for you. No. You're totally right because it comes across in your body language. It comes across if you're a chef and your food, what you're putting out. Absolutely. I mean, your employees. I mean, something we've been talking with chefs about is how tough it is right now in the Valley to find quality employees. Amen, brother. Because there's so many restaurants yeah, no and joke. everybody thinks the grass is greener on the other side. And uh, you know. every week, 50 more restaurants open up and people move around and quality people are just not out there the way they were 10 or 15 years ago in the restaurant business. Yeah, I, I mean, our turnover at our winery is up there like that too because everybody wants to go to the next thing and... They'll come back later and be like, oh, I should have stayed. I'm like, well, yeah, it's a lot easier than a restaurant. But even when I was over at R&R, it's, we had 30, 40 servers, and we'd go through 20 a month at that point. I mean, Just because they just don't like it. You're not really going to make much difference of a money thing. It's just like, oh, I, gotta, I just got to go. It's not. And I think that there has to be a shift that happens, and hopefully it happens soon. But Robots. Uh, <laughs> robots, yeah, no. Um you know, we need to stop thinking, and I see it as a server. You know, I've been managing some kind of a hospitality establishment for the last 20 years, and this is not just a gig. You know, being a server is a profession. You know, t- take it, you know, take it and take it with everything. You know, you need to educate yourself. You need to taste things. You need to go to different places. It is not just something to get you by. I think that sometimes in the American culture it is seen as like, 
oh, well, he's just serving in the meantime while he gets his law degree. Well, it's great to have lawyers and it's great to have doctors and it's great to have engineers. But if you are going to be a server, be so proud of what you're doing and the fact that you are servicing people and truly educate yourself in the realm of spirits and food and service styles and I mean, something as simple as utensils, you know, if, if we take it, you know, some like in France, for example, you know, being a service of profession, you go to school for that. Mm-hmm. You truly go to school for that. In Mexico, for example, um, there is a, a, a couple of, of actual schools that are server schools, you know, and, and now it's not just the cooking side, but it's the serving side. Let's start really taking it as it is, taking it as a true profession. And once you realize that, I think you stand up straight and you're like, okay, now I'm responsible for everything that comes out of my mouth and my demeanor and, you know, my, my nonverbal. And, but until you do that, until you make that click, um, you will bounce around restaurants all your life. Is that, though, a product of the country that they're in versus America? They're very, very, very underpaid but they rely mostly on tips. Like I know people who serve in restaurants and make a real good living off it because they're so good at selling a product that they get real high-end tips on the end versus the person who just doesn't want to be there and they're always complaining, I just don't make enough money. I mean, I've had servers who, I've had the same two servers I've loved forever and a day. They've been there for a couple of years now and they're making good money because they're great service people and they earn the tips versus the couple that goes in and just quickly pours and runs and hides in the back or something. And they're always complaining that like, oh, I don't have enough money for it. So it's either a, do we need to start like come to a point where everybody has to universally pay more to the servers so they rely less on tips so you get actual quality people or you just got to hire those salesmen, those real driven people who want to push a product and make that kind of money. I think you hit it in the head. I think you hit it in the head. I think it's not about increasing the base. I think it's understanding that your revenue is coming from your ability to sell and to deliver a true service. Dropping off a plate does not mean that you're servicing a table. Yeah. You know, truly ensuring that everything is clean, everything is straight. I mean, it starts from the beginning of your shift. Look the part. You know, I mean, you can't expect to, you know, be in a dining room and, and, and look like crap. No, I mean, let's, let's just start with the beginning, you know, and know what you're selling. I mean, if, if I had to go to many restaurants in the Valley and ask them about their wine, and I mean, you know this because you've trained, you know, many wine, they have no clue. I mean, not even geography guys. I mean, and a lot of them, they know the name brands they need to sell and that's really, and and, and, and and let's not generalize, but you know, cause there's a lot of people out there that are pretty amazing. When, when you teach a wine class to 50 servers at a corporate restaurant, you're going to get three or four. They're going to look at you and you're just going to see them soaking up all that knowledge. There's going to be a bunch of them going to be looking around. There's going to be a handful that are hungover. There's going to be a handful <laughs> that just don't care. You know, the server job in the United States has always been an in-betweener job. Mm-hmm. It's everybody does, they serve tables or bartend while they're in between. They're in between life, they're in between girlfriends, they're in between jobs, they're in between careers, they're in between school, they're in between, it's an in-between job. And that perception has to change because the service industry, you can make a ton of money in it. I know people that serve tables and make more money than people that have doctorates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have people who have law degrees that work for me. Yeah, there you (laughs) go. 
And back of the house, you run into the problem where so many people go to culinary school, they spend all this money because they think they're going to be Emerald Lagasse, they're going to be on the Food Network. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, great, you went to culinary school. Where'd you work? Yeah. You know, and it's like... What can you do? If you don't have the work ethic, (laughs) and they get into a restaurant, they're like, oh, this is tough. I don't know if I can do this. And then they start breaking down. You're like, really? Because you're going to do this every day for the rest of your life working in the Mm -hmm. kitchen. You know, you have to have that in you. And that perception just kind of has to change overall. Like the the celebrity chef is not an attainable goal for most people getting in the culinary world. And if you're going to be a server, go all in because you're a, you're a salesperson at that point. The more the better you are, the more money you're going to make. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why when I worked at one of the hottest restaurants in town, there were three servers every single night. We're the top three in sales. We ran eight nine servers on the floor. Three of us were always in the top sales. Didn't matter our sections. People are like, oh, he's got a better section. Well, put me in your section. Let's switch for the night. I'll still outsell Bring you. Bring it on. I'll, and you know what? I always did because I went in there with a the confidence. Like, okay, you know what? Every table is going to have a bottle of wine. Every table is going to get an appetizer. Every table is going to get this. Some coffee drinks. Throw on the, turn and burn after that. And then all of a sudden, I'm also getting great tips because I'm providing an experience that the, the guest wasn't expecting. They were expecting to come in and get Pinot Grigio and pasta. <laughs> and, and they end up getting Falangina and, you know, the Cacio Pepe. You know, like they're getting like. Yeah. Which is pasta, but whatever. <laughs> but it's different. It's not marinara. Yeah, it's not is, spaghetti and meatballs. Is that a white sauce? Yeah. Oh, good old spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah. All right, so let's go for the last one now. Okay, let's let's get rid of our ice. We're going into a roasted coconut rum liqueur. Perfect way to finish off a meal. I love rum. I've been getting I'm, into rum so much more now. And actually, rum is going through a explosion yes. right now. Mm-hmm. Finally. like It seems like every couple of years, another liquor gets... Oh, yeah. Popular again. You know, right now it's gins and rums. Oh, gin took a while. Gin in Europe so was five years gin. ago. Well, and it's we were like we're infusing and smoking. And oh my gosh, thankfully. You're we're... seeing a lot more people in the cocktail culture getting super excited about uh, gins. Um, so next week or this weekend is the Arizona Cocktail Weekend. Mm-hmm. I'd say maybe next year, try and look into doing something like with those people. And you, because if it, but if you're doing cocktails and you can set up a thing and promote to the country or promote to the state that you're doing these fun cocktails with your cuisine, it's going to build the cuisine of your restaurant. It's going to build your clientele base. I guess I need a little bit more, uh, a few more drinks in you. you No, it's just that, you know, I definitely don't consider myself, you know, a a mixologist or a craft cocktail drinker. I, I, I just like the obscure <laughs> and I just like exploring things that are different. You know, I, I've always sort of criticized, you know, the, the, uh, the craft cocktail mixologist. I think that sometimes, you know, some, some people, you know, are really good about infusing this and that and have these cocktails that are like 14 ingredients piled high and you ask them to do a good, you know, martini. Make it the groni. And they're like, uh, a what? So, you know, I have, there's like this inner conflict in me. I understand um, About that. Yep. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, you know, I think that, it, for example, a great mixologist for me can can mix, can, can create, you know, bring out the best out of a spirit, not necessarily cover it up. But they also need to know where they, where it comes from, you know, what kind of geography, what, what's the climate. I mean, I feel like, again, we go back to the anthropology of what you're serving, you know, and, and the social aspect of what you're serving. Um, so I don't know, maybe. That speech right there lands you right into that culture. Oh, really? Sorry, but it Whoopsie. does. <laughs> well, because, 
you know what? Not not everyone has the one with the little mustache and. I'm, yeah, I don't and, have tattoos and you know sleeve tattoos. I'm, I'm trying. Thank God you don't have the mustache that you could twirl. <laughs> yeah, I know that'd be weird. I'm also. I am Mexican though, so you never know. <laughs> I'm trying to change the name though because I don't want it to be called mixologists anymore. Because they don't make mixes. They make cocktails. Mm-hmm. So I call them cocktailogists. Cocktailogists, yeah. That, that's my new nickname for them. So we're trying to get that to spread. Or beverage specialist. Yeah. Right? I mean. But I, I have a problem with some of them because they go too crazy. They're trying to smoke something and flame something and marinate something and muddle something. And I just want to drink sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to have a good food, a good cocktail, and a good conversation. A good margarita. Yeah. Like, honestly, when was the last time you had, like, not a, yeah. a good margarita? Fresh squeezed, beautiful, simple syrup, beautiful tequila. I mean... Three-putt juice. Three-putt juice. The ones I make myself. Oh, okay. I make I make margaritas when we play golf. There you go. And if you make a bad shot, you have to drink out of my margaritas. Yeah, you have to, to three-putt. I'll make often my own uh, sweet and sour. I'll make my own you know, lime juice with it. I'll, uh, it's, it's made usually with just a little bit of like Cointreau or Grand Marnier, mm-hmm. a good tequila, fresh squeezed lime, and that's it. Like yeah. I'm not putting any extra sugars and funky, funky stuff, stuff in, in there. there. No. Ooh. That's tasty. I love rum. It's, I've been getting into it a little bit more and more. Gin, it's funny because as a, it's funny the resurgences that are hitting and the people that are having their day in the sun. And I've gotten into gin so much more. And I got into rum a little bit recently because there's that rum bar up at uh, the Pima Princess, Toro and something. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to Yeah, and this lady came by and I was just talking randomly about rums and she goes, you got to try this one we just got in. And it was a 30-year, I think it was a 30-year aged rum and it was syrup, like it was dark black and it took its time coming out of the bottle. <laughs> it was like, it, it literally looked like molasses. Balsamic. Yeah, it was yeah. like a balsamic kind of, not even balsamic vinegar, like balsamic glaze. Yeah. And it was so good. I mean, I, I drank the littlest amount like this, basically, but it's seriously one of the best rums I think I've ever had. I got really into Zaya rum before it got bought out and changed and moved and the recipe changed um, when it was really a great barrel-aged rum and they had the greatest bottles. They're actually my olive oil bottles. So when the bottles are empty, I would scrape the label off and it had like the wicker on the top for the neck mm-hmm. and I fill it with olive oil and that's for cooking. Oh, nice. that's that's that bottle it's a, it's yeah. a good grab. It's, yeah, it's an old <laughs> Zaya bottle. So real quickly, is this a rum made from coconut, or is this a rum made and then coconut Infused. added? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is can you make rum out of a coconut, or does it have to strictly be sugarcane? I probably. I don't know that. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Good. I think you. I need. I think you have to distill it from sugarcane, but you can infuse it with whatever you want. I mean, yeah. you've got like Malibu. Malibu. You know? yeah. Malibu and Bacardi are the ones I could think of. And and once again, I mean, if to me something like Malibu is the cheap chemical infused you know, coconut rum, this is very natural tasting. Mm-hmm. This has a natural yeah. coconut taste that most coconut rums I've had do not have. It tastes like natural coconut, not sunscreen flavoring Bingo. coconut. Correct. And not I think coppertone. that there's like even a bark undertone to it. Like I can almost, it, it, it's not wood, but it's like barky. I almost feel like there's a roasted kind of like. I got the husk. It. A little bit. Yeah, husk. Yeah. See, I have I have a problem with liquors that have that high fructose corn corn syrup, like coying sweetness, mm-hmm. where this doesn't have that. No. And that was the same thing with the first one, was that when you have... in tune. Yes, I wasn't going to try you, it. You love saying I that. I love it that does. word. It's such a great word. <laughs> because if you have like uh, Sambuca, sometimes they're too coyingly sweet. They're like syrupy and it lingers and it just doesn't make me feel good after having all that sugar in my body. 
Whereas this has that natural sweetness and you could sit around and sip on this and it doesn't leave like a weird film in your mouth. Mm-hmm. I like this yeah. one. Well, they're food friendly. That's a good way to put it too. You know, like you can actually have these with food. Yeah, that is the one unfortunate thing is every now and then you get some cocktails at some places that no matter what you eat with it just won't work. And it's a lot of the fake built drinks, like mm-hmm. the flavored vodkas, the flavored tequilas. Fake sugar, fake, fake flavor. Sugar. Yeah, because it ling- it's like that fake sugar holds it on your tongue for way too long. Yeah, not a fan. So, so what's coming up next for Nona? Like, what's your what's your plans here in the next? So we have what Valentine's Day coming up? Are you doing a Valentine's Day event? Are you guys sold out? Oh, we. What's that? Oh, we. Yeah, that's so actually French. the theme. Yeah. Ah, oh, we. <laughs> oh, we. Oh, we. <laughs> so it's a um, it's a leather and lace French theme. Oh, we. Ooh, we. <laughs> Um, and, uh, we have two plated, we have, a uh, two, um, set menus. Uh, one is three course and the other one's five course. Um, obviously a lot of bubbles in there as well. Lots of bubbles. Always got to have bubbles. bubbles. Are you completely sold out already? Not yet. Uh, we still have some room on the eight o'clock seating. So there's two seatings, one at six, one at eight. Are you oh, continuing this through the weekend or is it just on Valentine's just Day Just on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Special day. For a restaurateur, this year it's very beneficial to you all because it being on a Thursday, Thursday it flows into Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Correct. Which this is something that people don't realize when you're in the restaurant business. Oh, you're, this you're is like, huge. Ka-ching. This is huge <laughs> because <laughs> a lot of people actually don't have the luxury of going out on a Thursday since they're going to be you know working on a Friday or they work early and just want to pass or you know you've got kids child care, the whole situation. So absolutely, Friday and Saturday and, and, and Sunday even. I mean, why not, you know, but... Probably the worst day to have it, maybe Sunday, because then it's... You're, you're already getting your business on Friday and Saturday you normally have, and then Sunday it's like, oh, now I got to work extra on Sunday. And it's like a family and, yeah. thing. Whereas you're not getting any extra benefit to it, whereas Wednesday or Thursday, I think Thursday's the magical day, because this mm-hmm. way it just keeps... It's, it's weekend eve. Yeah, <laughs> it no, just I, I like powers it. all that business. Rotate? Is it a rotating day? It is. Well, it's, it's, the always, 14th, it's always yeah. the 14th. Because mm-hmm. I know there's those some that's like Thanksgiving's always what the third Thursday. That's a guy asking that. You could tell. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> I oh, work Sarah. That. Yeah, I was very disappointed. I have to work that night. And I'm just like, ah. That's fine. But see, like in your case, we'll What's probably like see I'm never, you Friday never, yeah, and Saturday. I'll be there this weekend. Oh, no, I won't be. I'll be skiing for the very first time ever. Oh, so wow. You will see him in a cast on Monday. Yeah, exactly. No, I'll be wheelchailing it. Knock on wood. <laughs> All right, so what's next for the cuisine? So right now we have springtime coming up, so a lot of spring vegetables maybe. Yep, going into that, we are doing uh, Devour. On oh, you are going to do 20- Devour. Yep, we are doing Have Devour. you done that before? Nope, this is the first time. It's We've done gr- other festivals. It's a great event. One. I've been part of it for about 10 years. Um, it's the best food festival in Arizona, mm-hmm. and it's your next to people that you need to be next to. Exactly. The Arizona or the Scottsdale Culinary Fest is just a big drunk fest. And at the end, everyone leaves it. and Nobody has a clue what the hell they ate. And you're next to Chipotle and Carl's Jr. <laughs> yeah. So it's not really a good food festival. Where Devour, you have all your peers around you. You have some of the greatest chefs also sharing their best dishes with you. And you're all, there's a camaraderie that builds up a Devour. And I'm glad you're doing it. Um, are you doing just one day or both? We're doing just one day. We're, we'll Sunday? be there on Sunday. Yep. Yeah, we... Uh, you know, Saturdays are a big day. And as you mentioned, our, our 14 servers and our 16 <laughs> kitchen staff, you know, it doesn't, you know. You, you mean your assistant your to the assistant general manager the can't run the restaurant? Exactly. The, the restaurant. assistant general manager and the food runner can't run the restaurant. Um, but yeah. so, Sunday you get better restaurants out there because it's more local restaurants. Whereas mm-hmm. people that have 
the 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 hotel the change somebody yeah. like Kai Kai it can yeah. be there both days because they have a full force the 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 Marriott Desert Ridge or the you know Four Seasons they have a force like but on Sundays you always get the little you know mom and pop operations and the people who are like all right we're closed but we're gonna still wake up at the crack of dawn to get out, make all like a thousand dishes to serve y'all fifteen hundred just Woo. to be exact Woo. wow are you serving a couple different dishes or just one oh we're gonna stick to one. It's going to be our, our famous farro risotto, mushroom, awesome. parmigiano-reggiano. Yeah. It's funny. I think he nailed something he said earlier. The only things I'll eat if I see it on a menu for sure is a duck and risotto because it's nothing I can ever make. So if I see it, I want to try it. Like when you did the duck mole, I was like, oh, I'm having that. I, no matter what, that's what I was going to eat. And I loved it. And the risotto, I think I've burned through all the time now every time I'm there. It's so good. So but you know me. I love the tagliatelle. Yeah. That's just my favorite dish. <laughs> well, what can you not love about Seven hours of a sauce just simmering in the back of the stove, just going bloop, bloop, bloop. And the smell just lingering constantly through everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I know you also said you're in Old Town Scasa, but whereabouts exactly are you? I mean, as far as someone who's listening to the show coming to town is like, all right, where do I find them? Because you're kind of hidden. And I always say the best restaurants in town are the hidden ones. Like we've had on Cullen from Bar Pesh slash Crudo, hidden restaurant. Yes. Our friend owns Atlas, hidden restaurant. Hidden. You, hidden restaurant, like, I'm noticing a theme here with the people just, are having on the show. Weird. Now that you say that, I'm like, you're right. You got you to gotta take a little journey to get The there. gems. Yeah, so we are across the street from the Rusty Spur. So the Rusty Spur is the oldest bar, I think, in Old Town Scottsdale. Yeah. So probably everybody knows Everybody the knows Spur. people coming out of town exactly. love the Rusty Spur. So if, you, um, if you're looking at the Rusty Spur, you basically cross uh, the street and you go into the little business area there and we're straight in the back, like where the, where the back, the last, um, the last business, basically. Yeah. You can see our patio from the street, with little yellow chairs there. <laughs> it's like a little walking cul-de-sac kind of thing. It is, yeah. It's, it's, like it's kind of hidden. It's called it a hidden. frontier land? Frontier town. Frontier town. Mm-hmm. It looks like an old western town with the wooden walkways and the planks squeaks. that go squeaks everywhere. It's yeah. right by... Frankie Muniz's olive place now. Outrageous olive oil. Outrageous olive oil. That's what it's called. Yeah. And you're only open five nights a week or are you open six? We, uh, for season, we only close on Mondays. And so uh, we open Sunday for brunch and lunch. Um, and then uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, noon to nine. Good, op- good, good hours. Hours of operation. Yeah. 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 Uh, we actually have a lot of our regulars that come past the quote unquote traditional lunch hours. Um, we have a lot of people that actually finish their day, like kind of work there and just get a drink and get some food. Um, a lot of our neighbors actually eat there. So, you know, like you sort of eat wherever, whenever you can. Yeah. <laughs> Business owners. Yeah. Thing. You could get off for just yeah. a quick second. Well, you're smart catering your hours of operation to Scottsdale and Old Town. Like the people that are actually there and coming in, you know, you have a lot of people this time. They're just walking around. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Spring training's coming up. That's going to be huge for you, I'm sure. That's huge. <laughs> it's like a uh, San Francisco Giants flag out. Yes. Front. Odds are high that we will actually start doing breakfast Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Excellent. Just to cater to you know this influx of people. I think Old Town Scottsdale. Some some of these breakfast places, you literally have a two hour wait. Um, during high season. And so, um, you know, why not make a little breakfast Nona style? You Put know? your Let's little get cart, weird. Your Let's cart get out weird. front. I know, I get my it. bike in there. <laughs> but that that's the good thing about having your own little restaurant. You can kind of, you can just do it and you're like, let's just have fun. I think, you know, we're partnering up with, with, uh, with a, a local uh, dessert pastry 
Baker. Um, and yeah, we're, why not? If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We don't do it again. Do we get to know? say who? Sweet D's. Okay. Yeah, Sweet D's. Sweet D's. Over song? at Stetson. Ah, yeah. I know that one. So she actually just started. She she opened her her place over in July, I think June, July. She does really cute stuff. She did those pastries you made a while ago, the... Uh... The, was it Ethiopian or Somalian? No, or? that was my uh, Middle Eastern sampler. And we, we actually partnered with the uh, Syrian Refugee uh, Baker Association. And so basically what they do is they um, they gathered Syrian refugees and saw that they had these amazing baking skills. And so they actually sell them over at the farmer's markets. And yeah, so, I see them. Yeah, Sarah yeah, usually buys. I can't remember what the name baklava. of. Baklava. Baklava. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Happiness. Sarah loves those things. So good. Yeah. Um, so we actually at one point, because of the seasonality of the menu, we were we, we changed up and it was um, we had a little baklava sampler. Um, so we're we're up to you know we work with whoever wants to work with us. We you know we're totally up for why not you know let's let's feature you for four months and let's see if it goes and yeah. Awesome. I mean that's a good thing about being urban gypsies, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. All right, so everybody, what's your address? 7240 East Main Street in Scottsdale. So Main and Brown are the major cross streets or Indian School in, um, in Scottsdale Road and right across the street from the Rusty Spur. Yeah, so everybody, please go check them out. Uh, Nona, is it Urban Eatery? Nona Urban Eatery, yeah. I love Same that. thing, web- website, nonaurbaneatery.com? Uh, it's, n- it's Nona Scottsdale. Nona Scottsdale. .com. Yeah, or Nona Scottsdale on Instagram as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. These cocktails or cocktails, these drinks have been absolutely amazing. I know I absolutely love them. I'm a huge fan of this uh, Stuben or Stabentun. There you go. That's going to be my fun word for the week. I can't wait to ask you next week uh, to pronounce it again. Uh, after we had a few yeah. things, I just can't <laughs> yeah. wait to go into another bar and be like, can I get a Stabentun and just watch them stare at me with this just blank look on their face? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully there will come a time when you don't see that, right? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. We shall see. Let's well, hopefully you lead the charge in this one. Yeah. I'll, I'll try. And anytime you have some fun events coming up, you have a crazy wine dinner, cocktail pairing dinner, let us know because we can help you cross promote it and send it out to our network. And um, I really love what you're doing. I This state needs more people like you too. So keep fighting the good fight for yes. us consumers. Thank we'll you. Definitely keep pushing people in your direction. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very Appreciate much for coming it. on. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks. Bye, Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.